pleasure to be here, everyone. Um, we're going to present in order, so you know we're just going to have some awkward standing while we talk. Um, so. Lovely to see you all. I'm James Elks, Head of Product Development at Neighbours, which is the National Australian Built Environment Rating System. Um, at Neighbours, we rate the sustainability of buildings. So how much energy does it use, or water, or waste, or maybe the, what the air quality is. And, and we're everywhere across Australia. So all of the large commercial buildings that you see around here, all of the office towers that you probably inhabit some days of the week, possibly, maybe not, um, it will, they will have Neighbours ratings. Um, there's also a story, of course, about how Neighbours in the 90s was named after the TV show, but unfortunately that's not the topic of today's talk. Um, I'm here with my colleague Katie Isles and also Nova Franklin. Uh, oh, hold on. Climate crisis. Um, Texas, February, everything froze. Um, 400,000 people without power. Oh, no, it doesn't work on there. I've got to hold it. Uh, bushfires. We saw crazy bushfires in Australia a few years ago, but also recently, only a couple of weeks ago, we saw the devastation in Maui. Uh, we saw California. We saw the Canadian wildfires that happened uh, earlier this year with those incredible photos of New York City and the orange haze like we saw in Sydney. Heatwave. It's been hot the hottest ever. So 6th of July this year, we saw global average temperatures at the highest they've ever been in history. They broke the record that was set the day before, and that broke the record that was set the day before. And also some lowlights from this year, checks notes, uh, floods in India, Pakistan, China, South Korea, Japan, and the Philippines. Extreme heat and drought in Uruguay, Middle East, and North Africa. We saw Cyclone Freddy, which was a five-week-long cyclone, the longest on in history that smashed through Madagascar and Mozambique. And, and that's just this year. Um, and we've seen more stuff in the last week, right? We all read the news, and it's pretty depressing. And this is happening because we're putting greenhouse gas, like carbon dioxide, up into the air, and it's warming the atmosphere, and it's leading to sort of wild weather. Um, Lots of frowns. That's the worst part, because um, don't forget, today's about an exciting story about how we're doing something about this, and lots of people are now. Uh, so we're going to vote. Um, so think, I want you, everyone to think of everything that uses energy, like globally. So obviously buildings use energy, but cars, buses, trains, manufacturing, industrial processes, agriculture, big machines. And, and so we're going to do a, a standing vote. So I'd like everyone to stand up. If you can't stand up, maybe just put your hand up. Um, come on, stand up. Yeah. <laughs> and what we kind of vote on is like how much of that carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases, how much of that just comes from buildings? So I'm going to count up, and you guys are going to sit down when you get to the number that you think it is, percentage of just greenhouse gases from buildings as opposed to everything else. So I'll give you a hint. It's not zero, and it's not a trick question. It's not 100% either. Um, so 5%. Sit down if you think it's 5% of emissions that just come from just buildings as opposed to everything else. Um, 10, oh, hold on, it's gone too far. Oh, no! <laughs> Guess what? You're all right. It was 38%. I'm very impressed. Um, incredible crowd, well-educated. Um, so we can divide this up into greenhouse gases that come from when the building's got humans in it, like right now, like aircon and lights and all sorts of things like that. 
and embodied carbon, which is the greenhouse gases emitted when the building is being built. So like the sand and the cement and the concrete and the steel and all that kind of stuff. And what is embodied carbon? Like just to take an example, um, a simple example is just a brick and we all know a brick. Yep, okay, good. Um, I was worried. Um, okay, so to make a brick, you've got to dig clay out of the ground. You've got to, you've got to ship that to a manufacturing site and you've got to make it into a little brick shape. Then you put it in a kiln and you heat it up. Um, Ta-da, you've got a brick. But then you've got to take it to the building site and you've got to lift it up. You've got to put it in the building. Then you've got to repair that over like 100 years or more if you're lucky. And then at the end of its life, you've got to get rid of that. And, and all stages through that, there are greenhouse gases emitted through the different processes involved in those different things. Um, so what's the problem? Well, right now, there's no globally agreed standardized method of actually measuring emissions from, from this to compare it, which means there's no way to fairly compare buildings. So, and that's a problem because if you don't know what good looks like and you don't know what bad looks like, then you can't do things like drive policy and you can't do funding and you can't do competition. Um, there's also a huge range of stakeholders here. You can imagine the people who are making the bricks, but also the people that are uh, operating the buildings and, and in those buildings and everything in between. Um, and those people, they largely need to agree for us to do anything when it comes to embodied carbon. And many of them are direct competitors. And this is something we need to work on now. So if we're designing a building right now, and there's lots being designed right now, then it's gonna be about five years before that's actually built. But we're locking in decisions now about what that building is constructed out of. And 2030, which is a you know, major milestone when it comes to limiting global warming under the Paris Agreement, that's just seven years away. So this is not something that we can afford to just sort of dilly-dally about. We need to do something about it now. So someone needs to do something about building emissions. Enter neighbors. Um, in partnership with Meld Studios, but also ThinkStep ANZ, asking questions to industry like, do you think we should do something about embodied carbon? What solutions would you like to see to support a change? Is Neighbours, who focuses on measuring buildings and comparing them, are we the right people to bring some of those solutions to life? So this talk is about how we engaged 200 plus people from 150 plus organisations across Australia to figure out how we can drive down embodied carbon in buildings. Um, but we're not the only ones working on it, right? There's lots of people playing here, and we need to do it without doing this. So I'm just gonna read this one out for, for those of you who are on the line. How standards proliferate, it's titled. Situation, there are 14 competing standards. 14, ridiculous, we need to develop one universal standard that covers everyone's use cases. Soon, situation, there are 15 competing standards. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to awkwardly sit on the stage with Nova and pass over to my colleague, Katie Ells. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about uh, how we worked with the construction industry to create um, a framework for an embodied carbon rating tool that can be used across Australia. So first, a little bit of context. Um, what is Neighbours? What's the point of Neighbours? How can we help here? Um, this just is kind of in a nutshell what we do um, when we create environmental ratings for buildings. We uh, create a scenario where you can be rated from one star of like, maybe you're just beginning your sustainability journey to six stars of, wow, great, you're a market leader. Um, so that people can see, you know, where does my building sit? So that might be for energy or water use or indoor environment quality. Um, but now we're looking at creating something like this for embodied carbon. 
Uh, so yeah, having a, a rating system like this is really useful because if you're constructing a building, you can have in your strategy, where do we actually want to be? If we want to be at a six star rating, then we know what, what numbers we have to meet as we're actually constructing the building. And a little bit of context as well around this specific project that we're talking out about uh, during this presentation and what kind of phase of the project we're talking about. So um, we're talking about the initial discovery work and then the um, testing and iterating that we've done based on the initial discovery work. Uh, so, you know, we've uh, spoken with innovators, we've done a bunch of workshops with industry, we've figured out, um, you know, what is actually needed in this space and then tested, you know, what are the fundamentals of what we need. But we haven't uh, quite gotten yet to finishing the actual build it stage. That's what we're doing at the moment. We just started a couple of months ago. So yeah, this, uh, what we're talking about today is really about that initial discovery and testing and iterating on what are the main themes of what we need to do. So about two years ago, we, we started working in this space and uh, we looked at the construction industry and we thought, yeah, wow, that's a, it's a pretty um, big and complex situation. Where do we even start? Because if you think about um, when you're creating a building, there are so many people involved in what that actually looks like. So starting with planning, for example, like what's in the construction code in terms of what a building needs to do or function like. Um, then you've got architects, you've got construction companies and the builders that actually choose the materials that go into the buildings. And then you've got the, um, the companies that actually create those materials, you know, the cement manufacturers, the steel and aluminium manufacturers. Uh, so what are they doing in terms of creating products that then dictates what can or can't be built? So yeah, huge complex situation. Where do we start? Uh, so we started with talking to people that were innovating in the embodied carbon space. And we chose to start with the innovators because they could give us a really good idea of like how they were already making headway, you know, what approaches are they taking, what impact have they been able to make so far, um, what lessons have they learned, and how can we join forces with them rather than doing something like what James had on his slide and starting to compete with anyone that's already doing good work. So once we spoke with those innovators, we had a really good idea of what the kind of lay of the land was like in terms of what's happening at the moment and who do we need to speak to. Um, so we're able then to actually start on engaging really broadly. So yeah, spoke with over 200 individuals um, who work for more than 150 organisations. Uh, did heaps of workshops and all this kind of stuff. So I'll talk through how we did that um, process of really engaging broadly to figure out what to do together. One of the most important things that we learned when we spoke to those innovators at first was that this whole area of embodied carbon, especially two years ago, it's changed a bit now, people have kind of learned more, but especially two years ago, embodied carbon was seen as a huge problem but no, or very few people really knew what they could start doing about it or how to start making a positive impact. Um, a lot of people wanting to do something, but how to do something or what to do was a really big question. So for us, that meant that when we were speaking to people, um, doing workshops, 
we had to make sure that we were helping like scaffold information in a way that helped people kind of build knowledge on the spot and be able to make informed decisions about how what we were doing might impact them or what needed to be done just so that, yeah, so they could really simply like gain a lot of understanding during maybe a two hour workshop and have an informed opinion there on the spot. And so that, um, that fact of having to help everyone along on this journey of gaining a lot of knowledge really affected how we went about the research process. So one big example is that uh, when we were out there engaging with all of these different parts of the industry, we did that group by group in workshops with people all together. So, you know, for example, maybe a group of architects or a group of developers or a group of builders. Um, and the, the reason why we did that and met with everyone together was because knowledge was so patchy. Doing that meant that everyone in the room brought the bits of knowledge that they had and we could kind of put that together and, and you know, everyone could understand each other and, and learn together basically and form the picture together. Um, yeah, really important when knowledge is sparse. Uh, I mean, what that did mean, obviously, if we're meeting with a, a group of architects, for example, is that we do have direct competitors in the room together. And I guess, you know, on the one hand, you could think, well, maybe that'll make people clam up. Um, they won't want to be as honest. Uh, but actually, for us, it was really helpful um, because there were a lot of key decisions that we needed to make about what direction we should head in. And having competitors all sitting in a room together and learning together and hearing each other's perspectives meant that they're actually a lot more willing to compromise because they understood where everyone else was coming from and they could all like see the bigger picture together. So yeah, that was a really useful thing for us. Uh, the other thing that was really important as well, if everyone's kind of learning together and getting up to speed with um, content, technical content on embodied carbon on the spot um, was making sure that people who were kind of, you know, I don't want to say under duress, that's probably a bit strong, but people, people who are learning on the spot and trying to get up to speed might be a bit quiet in terms of sharing their opinions because they're thinking, they're processing, it's a bit harder to have a, have a strong stay on the, say on the spot like that. So we just made to ensure to ensure we, um, had a lot of activities like quiet thinking time or written brainstorming and stuff like that to make sure we got out what everyone had to say rather than just the people who were more comfortable talking loudly. Uh, so yeah, we went through all of those workshops with hundreds of people from hundreds of organisations and uh, based on that, we were able to co-create with them 10 proposals for what we thought an embodied carbon measurement tool should look like. And um, yeah, on the screen, we've got a blurred example that is, that is actually supposed to be blurred because <laughs> we thought a lot of text might be a bit distracting. But um, just to give you an idea of what those proposals looked like, they all had a context for why is this one of the most, one of the 10 most important things to consider if you're looking at embodied carbon. They all had a short and clear proposal, just a simple statement of this is what we intend to do about this. And then they all had a rationale as well. So it was really easy for anyone to go in there and say, oh, okay, this is why this is here. This is the decision and here's the rationale. So I can go back and understand why that's the decision. Um, 
yeah, so yeah, we co-created those 10 proposals basically with industry and then we went back and tested them again with everyone uh, to make sure that we'd interpreted it correctly, the information that they gave us, um, and to see you know, if there were any tweaks that we needed to make. So I just have here an example of, uh, I mentioned before that we needed to be really careful to make the information that we were sharing really clear and to the point um, because it is very technical. There's so many issues involved. Everyone's learning. So this is just an example of how we did try to scaffold information to make it super clear. So this is one example of the kind of decision that we had to make. Um, it's a, I don't know, it's a little complex because embodied carbon generally is a little, a little complex, but bear with me. So one of the things which we needed to decide was if we're measuring embodied carbon in a building, how far into the future should we go? Because the first and most obvious option is um, once the building's built, we stop and we measure the embodied carbon in all the materials it took to create the building. Um, or you could go a little bit further into the second one and say, um, actually, we should measure the embodied carbon in the building, but also the embodied carbon in the use of the building because there's trade-offs that you could be making, right? For example, if you build with double glazed windows, maybe you need more energy to run the building because it won't be as efficient as triple glazed windows for heating and cooling. But double glazed windows are gonna save on your embodied carbon in the build because there's less material. So, you know, um, potentially you might wanna look at the building in use as well. Or there's the third scenario where you go all the way to the end and say, no, we actually should even be looking at what happens when the building is demolished. Is it uh, built in a modular way so that it can be taken apart and the bits and pieces can be reused elsewhere? Or are we sending a bunch of materials to landfill? What does that look like? And what trade-offs are you making when you're building it? So yeah, there's three potential options there. And then we tried to really simply go, okay, well, what are the pros and cons of each one and make that just crystal clear. So. You can see um, on the left, just the build is in green. That's the decision we took because it's simple and it's making a big impact now, which is what we need, impact ASAP. Um, whereas the further into the future you get, the more you're making predictions, those predictions might be wrong. It's not stuff that is really necessary right now in terms of making a big immediate difference. So yeah, we use this strategy like with every decision that we had to make basically to keep everyone focused on what is this specific simple point, what are the simple options and the pros and cons. We're not discussing a bunch of different things and getting a bunch of different arguments all mixed up together. It's just what is our decision on this? And later, obviously, we worry about the details. Um, now, as we're going through the build, we're worrying about the details. It's like, but um, yeah, at least in the initial, what direction are we heading in? we know what clear decisions we have to make. Uh, so another really important thing that we did uh, when we were going through this discovery phase as well was because it's such a technical area, we had one main technical consultant, uh, but we also hired two additional technical consultants who we knew to have different views to the first consultant. We did that to make sure that um, we were uncovering all the potential issues and to make sure that industry trusted us um, 
because they could see, you know, we're really exploring every angle and making sure we can get this right and un uncover every technical possibility. Um, initially, the consultants thought that they wouldn't be able to agree with each other, but by um, creating the proposals with industry, going through and testing them again, keeping on discussing and altering them, we did actually manage to get to a place where everyone broadly agreed. So once we got to that place where everyone broadly agreed, um, we published a public consultation paper with, um, well, I was gonna say these proposals, but that was on the earlier slide. Um, yeah, because we're really committed to making sure that anyone that had any skin in the game could give us some feedback on this. And um, yeah, uh, we got an amazing response actually to the uh, consultation paper. About 85% of the responses that we received were either positive or very positive, which is pretty um, unheard of for public consultation. Uh, and yeah, it was a real point of celebration for us and also the industry because at the start of this two years ago, no one thought we'd all be able to agree, but it showed that we had gone on a journey together, co-designed it and managed to agree. So this is just one example of um, one of the things that someone said in their response to the feedback. Um, having this consistent, robust approach is integral to starting momentum, um, which is, yeah, exactly what we're trying to do, start a momentum in the right direction. So, yeah, I think definitely a, a moment of pride for us and also the construction industry broadly, who's given us so much of their time throughout this process. Uh, I think, yeah, probably the last thing to mention is, obviously, as we went through this process, we were really focused on what our users' needs are, what the industry needs, what is going to be useful for them. Uh, but we also had North Star objectives for neighbours. Um, what does neighbours need to be able to actually produce this and to maintain it over time? Because if, if we're not capable of producing it and maintaining it, then trying to do something that's useful for everyone else is, yeah, it's just not going to work out. Um, so these are just a couple of examples of those North Star objectives that we had. Um, supporting behaviour change urgently to reduce emissions now and solving the biggest problems now. So having these meant that, I mean, of course, as you go through the research process and talk to people, it's really easy to kind of find out all this stuff and start going down rabbit holes of, oh no, we need to worry about this and that and getting into a lot of details. Having these North Star objectives just meant we always had something to look back at and be confident and say, okay, actually, no, we don't need to get carried away or sidetracked by these things right now because is it helping us solve the most urgent problem immediately? If it's not, let's just, let's put it in the later pile and, and forge ahead. So. Yeah, having, having our objectives really helped ensure that we could actually carry through and get the process on the move. So that's a lot from me and James at Neighbours. So I'm going to hand over to Nova and she can tell you what it was like being our design consultant. <laughs> I can. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. That was so, so good. Um, yeah, I'm going to talk to you about how what else we did, because there's a lot in what Katie talked about on how do we get people to agree. But I'm just going to add a bit more flavour and detail, and some of that talks back to the things that, that Katie has covered. But um, I went to the mega meetup, which was really cool, and Alexandra, who's there, was there, and I did this talk, and she's like, you're making it sound too easy. <laughs> and so I just want to note that 
this is a simplified version of what we did. And whenever you're making huge change, it's a complex layering of things that you do that gets you to the end point. It's not one thing, it's, it's all of the things. It's everything, everywhere, all at once, I guess. Um, so how do you get people to agree? Um, I always, pretty much whether I'm working on a social problem or a sustainability problem, start with setting some rules of engagement, but I never tell the people their rules because who wants to you know, follow a rule? Um, I just kind of set it as a, like, here's a guideline for today. And there are some that I always cover. Um, the first one is always be kind. So um, we want to leave here today feeling like we're better friends than when we came in. And we know there are people in the room who won't uh, necessarily agree with each other and that's okay. But um, nobody wants to feel bad at the end of this. So keep that in mind as you interact with each other. And then um, I say, and I love it when people disagree. It's really helpful. And you can see we had the three consultants who had diametrically opposed views. That One guy at the end said, not only do we agree, but nobody punched each other. How cool is that? Like that's an <laughs> actual paraphrase. Um, so yeah, come up with the disagreements, they're all good. I've had two people in a workshop sitting next to each other with bright red faces, but having a civil conversation because we, we did this. Um, and then we ask people to make space for others. Like I'm really noisy, I talk a lot. So I say, if you're like me, then wait for others to speak first and then they're probably gonna say what you would say anyway and then fill the space. And the last one, Katie talked about how we allowed time for people to write down their thoughts. Um, and make notes before we had a conversation. So I say, we're gonna do that, but you'll be tempted to talk, but that's quiet time. So, you know, keep it, keep it quiet during that time. So I set those expectations and we did that on this project in all of the interactions that we had, it worked really well. Nobody got punched. Um, the other thing is to give everybody affected, everybody who has skin in the game, who would care about this thing a voice. But that doesn't mean, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people in the building industry. That doesn't mean we have to talk to every single person. We have to talk to people who represent all of the different types of people. And so Katie's spoken through who some of the, the different people were. And there's, you know, people who make the decisions and they're the ones who would um, buy a neighbor's tool. And then, you know, there's progress project teams who they were like let's not make this building so big and then there'll be less emissions so we had to talk to people like that uh, and builders and um, there are others along the way policymakers because at the end of the day we really hope that policymakers will look at this and go you should do this on your building um, so give everyone affected a voice um, make ideas easy to digest. I love that picture because there's like nothing extra in it. It's so simple and pared back. And that is, that is the task, right? Um, if you come and chat to me about embodied carbon later, I might blow your brain up by mistake. I will try not to, but this stuff is super complex. So how do you make it so that people can actually have an opinion and when it's all new and they don't know? Um, one of the things is stripped back language. So take out every word that doesn't need to be there. If, put your hand up if you've ever um, trained to be a yoga teacher. Tr yoga teacher. Oh, that's me. Okay, good. Um, <clears throat> I'm not, I couldn't, I can't do it. Like I've, I, I did pass the exam, but you have to just use so few words to tell the person to move their body. It's really hard. And you can't even go ing, like moving, you're like move. Um, and so, <laughs> That's really important when you're writing something, it's really difficult for people to understand. More words blow their brain up so you get rid of a lot of the words. Um, 
stripping back the ideas as well, we had nine proposals and one of them is a roadmap, so 10 proposals. But in the beginning, a lot of them were intertwined um, and we had to get to a point where each one was just like, no, this is a thing. And yeah, it relates to all the other stuff, but we had to pair it back so people could understand it and make an informed decision on it. That was really hard. Um, you saw when Katie showed the blurred out on purpose proposal <laughs> that there was a, a context. So people don't know, tell them a bit about the thing, then show them the thing you're asking them to decide on. And then we had a rationale, which is, why have we gone this way? Because you all told us this is the way we needed to go. Um, and then that helped people go, oh, okay, you've already had that feedback. I don't need to give that feedback or, oh, I get where you've gone to there. So make ideas easy to, to digest. We also started with a list of six um, common needs or principles that everybody agreed on. So even though there was a lot of disagreement in this space, we knew that if we started with things that everybody wanted, we could move from there. And so some examples of some of those things is you would not be surprised to hear that if you're building a tool to reduce embodied emissions, you want it to be impactful. Like nobody wants to do this thing for fun. It's not fun. Um, and for example, um, you want it to be streamlined. So everybody has a job and they have hundreds of things they do in their job and measuring the embodied emissions or the embodied carbon is just a small part of their job. So you've got to make this thing like go in, do it as fast as, you know, as fast and as accurately as possible, you hook it up to other systems and then you can come out and do something else. So it needs to be streamlined. That was one of the things everyone agreed on. Um, it had to be consistent. So there's no point two people going in measuring the same building and going, I think you have X amount of carbon coming out of that building and someone else going, no, it's, it's Y amount. That is not going to work. So a set of principles that everybody agreed on was a really great place to start. And then we could use those principles. Um, Sarah had a similar, similar chart that she used. So it's like, this is what we all agree on. And if we need to make some decisions, so this is, a, you know, this is an option, this is an option, and this is an option, we can then compare um, how good our decisions are against the stuff we agree on. So if we're thinking about which emissions should we measure, and we're going, yeah, just measure the ones from the building. Is that impactful? Mm, yeah. Um, what if we, you know, what if we keep keep uh, measuring more stuff? Is that more impactful? Yeah. And then you can take kind of an average and go, well, which of these ways should we go? And you can see that it's not as simple as just having one green or one orange because across these things, um, these, uh, these different uh, levels of goodness changed. Um, that's not a real example. They're not the real, uh, I made that up. So uh, <laughs> that, that, that's from another example, but just in, indicatively, right? Go from where everybody agrees and use that to evaluate your options on which way you might go forward. Uh, listen and evolve. Everybody said that today. Everybody does that. Like you, there's a term called console told where you decide what you want to do. And then you go and you go, here it is. Cool. Great. Bye. And then you go build it. That, that is not this. Um, we had people whose whole businesses or whole industries could be at stake if we measured this in the wrong way because people wouldn't want to buy their product. Um, maybe people would buy lots of concrete and not lots of wood if we got this wrong. So really important to get that right. 
Um, and so we kept kind of going back and going, oh, okay, that's, that's a showstopper. What if we do this? And then, um, you know, we ended up with a comment like this at the end, which is, thank you for adjusting this based on our concerns. It's not perfect, but I can live with it. So that's a paraphrase. But essentially that was someone who at the beginning we were really worried was going to block the whole thing. So um, that was just amazing when that person said that. Um, and that wasn't the punching person either. Um, the other thing is to make a start and build from there. Like this is a big thing. You want to get rid of as much carbon from the atmosphere as you can. But the reality is if you don't make a start because you make something that's just so complex, you can't reduce any carbon. Um, and so we really did take a decision to make a start and build from there. So we had nine paired back minimum viable um, ideas that created a product but we also had this thing and I don't know how it happened but it ended up being a massive get out of jail free card for us we had this thing which is the roadmap and so essentially what we did is we had here's the here's where we're going to start we're going to do these things but it's not it's really not perfect it's not going to hit everything for everyone and there's a lot more carbon that we can capture in the future when we expand but what we're what we're committing to is that in 18 to 24 months we will um we'll review some of these decisions and these are the ones that we'll review. And then people could go, oh, okay. So I didn't get exactly what I want for my industry here, potentially, but I get that in 18 to 24 months, we're gonna have another crack at it. And you've heard me and I really appreciate that you've heard me and I can see that you have. Um, and that was, that was a, an amazing learning on this project. So, we wanted to leave lots of time for questions. We've got about 10 minutes. There is a stooge in the audience who has a question in case you guys don't have any. <laughs> but I think you will have some questions. I'm sure of it. Oh, that's not the stooge. Great. <laughs> <laughs> she, got the, she got the briefing of don't go first, like in the, like when we're prompting people at this, in the workshops, like hold, hold back. Hey, um, really interesting talk. So my question is about that, that trade-off that you mentioned with the, uh, the glazed windows. Like, did you do any, where did you go with that? Because I'm a huge fan of the idea of double glazing. Is there, is there a solution that doesn't penalise double glazing for embodied carbon? Yeah, so really great question. Uh, we did hear a lot of people going, but if, you, if you're only focusing on the embodied carbon, the durability of the building, you know, you'll make other compromises and that'll make the building worse to run later on. And you know, there were people who said that, but they weren't the people who made the decision on what the building, how the building would uh, be built. It was often people around that. And when we actually said to the people like the builders and the people like the architects, is this a thing, is this gonna happen? They were like, no, it won't happen because everybody cares about reducing the carbon upfront, but they also care about how the building will run and there will be, you know, it will be as sensible decisions will be made. We, that was also, I mean, firstly, probably the wrong conference, but um, for the double glazing question, but we, um, <laughs> we, we, we use that, those sort of principles again to actually kind of measure that and see, again, where should we place this? How, how much of an issue is this? And also the roadmap. So one thing that's in the roadmap is looking at that exact issue. Because of our amazing framework, are people now building cardboard buildings because they've got super low embodied carbon, um, but, you know, cost lots to, to operate because they're made out of cardboard. Um, so we'll be looking at that, that kind of stuff in future. 
And yeah. uh, sorry, I just want to add a little good news story in as well, which is um, in terms of the requirements in our building code, it, it would actually be illegal to do something that's highly inefficient anyway. So, yay. Yeah, that's really good. So yay, I, building code. I think this is sort of a good question for design because it's like about trade-offs and how you... Yeah. That's, so I think it's slightly the right, yeah. right, and right I think, question. <laughs> yes, and I think Trade also off. that idea of, you know, ask the right people, ask the people who know, because sometimes people go, you know, when you're asking them something, they go, old people wouldn't like that. And then you go and ask someone who's an older person and they're like, I love the idea of that. I'd like to give that a red hot go. So, you know, there's, there's a lesson in that as well, I think. Hi, I'm here. Hello. I'm just wondering in terms of trade-offs, where, where does the role of aesthetics come into this, this kind of discussion or conversation? Because, I mean, in the past we've had buildings that have been made with um, massive amounts of embellishment and adornment and this type of thing. So in terms of the trade-off and the scale of functional, sustainable, and then also really good to look at uh, for communities, etc. is that something that is considered? I can do that. No, yes and no. Um, so whilst we think the framework's really important, and it, it is, um, it's not kind of the be-all and end-all. And so one thing that we had to be really clear about was our framework is about measuring and comparing embodied carbon, going back to <clears throat> what is the actual thing that we are trying to do. And there are other people out there who are going to look at things like, what does good architecture look like? and what is the function of this building? And they will make those trade-offs. And we've seen project teams and builders sort of say, well, you know, I don't care what the embodied carbon is. I want all the embellishment and that, that's gonna happen. Um, but also other people being like, I want super low embodied carbon, but I also want the really cool architectural stuff and, and people, really clever engineering type people and architectural people figuring out how to actually deliver that. I just want to build on from that question, though. If you, as a regulator, I'm assuming, like a part of the government, you can then decide, you know, if it's not a three-star, four-star, you know, rating thing, it can't be built, maybe, or you can't have a certain types of tenants. Like I know for government services, they won't go into a four or five-star minimum. So then you start getting nothing but, you know, big square buildings. That's the lowest body carpet that looks shit. So you, you can't really say, we don't decide that, we just t talk about, you know, the capturing of the thing, but if your policies and your regulations link then to actual policies that say, okay, well, you, Mr. Builder, are going to choose to build a four to five star thing, because otherwise you won't get these tenants, which uh, is very lucrative, you know what I mean? I know. Does anyone have a, an answer that's... Yeah, I do. I do. Short. <laughs> so what's happening is that the building, the manufacturing industry is moving on this stuff and you can now get low emissions concrete and they are starting to make products that are lower emitting and what the people who are commissioning the buildings and the builders will do is they will, we, our system will help them to see uh, which products are lower carbon and they will have a number of decisions to make, like they need their building to look good to get it tenanted and they need it to be low carbon. So they will make trade-offs, but you know, 
the world is about trade-offs. They're already making trade-offs because of dollars. They're already making trade-offs because of uh, other things. So this is just one of the pieces of information that helps them to make a really good decision. And as I said, there are, it's really encouraging because we are starting to see, and we will see a lot more, um, low embodied emission building products into the future. Yeah. Question over here. Yeah, mine is kind of in the same trend of that. Um, so you've created this sort of star system. Um, were there any proposals in this um, project that you've participated in where, what if the build, like, are there any repercussions of buildings not following these calculations and stuff like that? And what are those regulations? Were there any proposals that were sent as a result of this? So no, the short answer is no, because we're not the, we're not the, like, the, the government. I mean, yeah. like, um, we're not the regulator, I guess, to be specific. So Neighbours, what we're really good at is, like, measuring how efficient buildings are for the different sustainability things, and then saying if that's good or bad. And so we don't, we're not the people who will be out and, you know, writing tickets being like, hey, it's too much embodied carbon. So no, that wasn't part of our proposal. But... Yes, I expect that other parts of government will be considering policy around it. And we had those people in the room who might make those policies in the future, but they haven't made them now. There is, does the New South Wales SEP point to neighbours, but not as a, it's not mandating. It's like, hey, go look over there, do that rating, but it's not like you have to have a particular star rating, but one day in the future, they probably will. I hope they will. One more question from Kit. Hello, sorry. Um, my question is totally different to all that stuff. I'm Yay. curious about how you ended up engaging a designer to do a big chunk of this work as opposed to the industry consultants or someone outside the design space. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, an, so that's a reasonably easy answer. So typically, Neighbours um, in its history would like convene a panel of experts and there'd be lots of engineers and things, really smart people, um, and we'd sort of make our way through to this a decision. Um, but one of my one of the things that I brought into the role, so I'm only a few years into, into this role, is sort of saying, no, when we do projects, we've got to go and speak to people who are impacted, figure out, you know, what should we be doing and should we be playing in this space? And it was a little bit unclear if we should be doing something or not, or maybe someone else was doing it, or maybe we're not the right people. And so, yeah, we found a pretty decent design consultancy to help us. <laughs> pretty decent, I guess. All right, please join me in, oh, we've got one more question, sorry. Hi, yeah. uh, so I have a question, it's a very painful question for my side. So I'm living right now in an apartment building uh, which was built like seven years ago and it has green house, like um, the sign that this is building is green. So what they did, they just not didn't install half of ACs on whole buildings, especially on the sun side. So, uh, yes, they achieved this green label, and then people in a couple months when they uh, get the keys, they start installed by their own, their old ACs. Mm. So, what I'm thinking about, if you uh, created the STARS uh, system, yeah, and for example, this building will achieve like five star, but in two months, uh, you can say, no, guys, right now you're like one star because, because of these issues. So, how do you think, how you, can like um, suggest how the builders, how to prevent this situation in the future. Do you want to have a start with that, Katie? Or do you? Do you want to? Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> yeah, go for it. Correct me if I'm wrong, James, but yeah. Firstly, sorry for that, that <laughs> sucky situation. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I think it comes down to maybe the difference between policy and regulation and the rating tool. So the rating tool is a handy way to measure and know what the situation is. And then in terms of regulations and what's actually required in buildings, those are other rules that can be made which can make use of rating tools. Um, yeah, do you guys have other stuff that you would? Yeah. Um, we did spend a lot of our conversations going, what could go wrong? Like if we measure in this way, what are the perverse consequences? Mm. And uh, some of the things were the building won't be as durable. So like, you know, make it out of matchsticks. Um, the building won't be able to be repurposed. So I don't know if you know, I didn't know, but there, when you build a building, sometimes you want to move the car park out and put something else in or move the stairs or add extra layers. So people were worried about a lot of those things. Our tool at the moment does not address those things, but we are doing some background, my understanding is we're doing some background calculations to see the effect of how, of what's going on and we can monitor that and then we can adjust if we need to. Is that fair enough? Yeah, the roadmap addresses that, yeah. Thank you all, thank you. Thank you.